Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Fair Folk is a podcast exploring the folklore and folk music of Europe with a focus on the sacred and the religious, the ancient and the pagan. Fair Folk aims to explore and sit with the sacred matter of the past so it can help us to build a richer, more diverse, and more beautiful future. Before I begin, I have some news to share. In a few weeks, I'll be announcing a new offering related to folklore, paganism, and the abundance mindset conversation I've been having lately in the podcast and on social media. It's an opportunity for people to connect with me on a deeper level and to get deeper into the concepts behind European paganism, animism, and folklore. I am really excited to share this with you, but I won't do so just yet. If you want to be the first to know when I do announce the new offering in a couple of weeks, the best way to do that is to sign up for my mailing list, which you can do right now on my website, fairfolkcast.com, which is linked in the show notes. On the website, you can scroll down to the bottom of the main page or wait for the pop-up to prompt you to enter your email address. I hope to see you there. This is the second episode in a three-part series on the topic of wells and springs in folklore and myth. This one, the second in this series, is titled Water of Death. Wells are for wishing, wells are for healing, wells are for cleansing and blessing. They are the very vessels of the Earth's lifeblood. They are openings to the other world, and sometimes, shockingly, they are sites of trauma, of violation, and of persecution. I'd like to give you a heads up that this episode contains some disturbing subject matter, including several references to sexual assault, incest, child murder, and violent anti-Semitism. I have done some deep academic research into these topics in the past, so I hope that will give you some confidence that I'll treat these subjects accurately and with sensitivity. Nevertheless, I am not perfect, and some subjects are triggering no matter how delicately they're presented, so I want to invite you to opt out of this podcast episode if you have any concern that yourself or another person present might experience distress from listening. I'll provide a link to the transcript in the show notes as well, if you'd like to read ahead and get a sense of what is coming. This episode bears witness to the troubled relationship between the folklore of wells and springs and memories of trauma and violation, an association that runs deeper than might seem likely for places with such otherwise positive associations. Worldwide, wells and springs are known as sacred places where people come to perform devotion and ritual and nourish the spirit of the earth and to gather clean, fresh water. You could say these bodies of water are in the business of keeping body and soul together. Our natural tendency, when we contemplate a sacred place like a spring, is to believe that it ought to be protected from harm and from pollution. However, as our instinct to protect these places demonstrates, sites of beauty and perceived purity are also, necessarily, sites of vulnerability. There is, after all, nothing sacred that is not also vulnerable. And the manifold significance innate in this symbol of the well, one of the oldest and most potent in our ancestral imagination, 
contains not only joy and reverence, but also cruelty and misuse. There is a strong stream of folklore about Wells, dealing with a theme of breaking deep social taboos and the punishments that attend these perceived social crimes. The association between Wells and Springs and violation and murder is very strong in European folklore and song, especially in the ballad traditions of Scandinavia, the British Isles, and Ireland, which I'll focus on especially in this episode. This episode is called Water of Death, for the magical water that appears in Slavic folklore alongside the Water of Life, which gave the first Wells and Springs episode in this series its name. While the Water of Life reanimates a lifeless body, the Water of Death has a more complex role in the folktales where it appears, and the two often depend on one another for their ultimate effectiveness. In the Russian folktale Maria Marevna, Prince Ivan is killed and cut into tiny pieces by Koshche the Deathless, placed in a barrel smeared with pitch, bound with iron hoops, and thrown in the sea. Having been thoroughly dispatched in this way, Ivan is then rescued by an eagle, a falcon and a raven, who pull him out of the sea. First, the raven sprinkles Ivan with the water of death, and his sundry chopped up pieces come back together. Next, the falcon sprinkles him with the water of life, which brings back the spark of life to his body. Put simply, the water of death mends wounds. Most often, it's used to reunite the parts of the body which have been separated by violence, such as occurs in a number of folktales in both Western and Eastern Slavic tradition. Applied to a dismembered body, the water of death will, so to speak, remember it. But you see, the water of death does not entirely heal the wounded person. It may bring the pieces of the body back together in a semblance of wholeness, but without the water of life to accompany it, the water of death merely reassembles. It does not reanimate. Likewise, if the water of life is used without the water of death, in some stories, the injured person will simply bleed to death, having been reanimated without first being reassembled, remembered, repaired. There's a hidden wisdom in the similarities between these mythic waters in Slavic folklore and the process of psychological healing. Remembering, both mental and emotional, may bring elements back together, incidents back to mind, which is the precondition for healing. But this remembering does not, in isolation, perform the final steps of that healing. I'm very intentionally using this water folklore as a frame for this episode because the subject of this episode is trauma itself. And perhaps the traumas I'll mention belong to the past, nominally, but we know in our bones that the past is always with us, and that time does not move in a line, especially not with regards to wellness and illness. In psychology, one of the most effective approaches to healing personal trauma is to sit in curiosity toward one's experience, one's own triggering, and to allow oneself to fully feel the emotions associated with the trauma. Without this very specific remembering experience, this open-hearted witnessing, the traumatized person may go on with their daily life on the surface, but like internal bleeding, the suppressed emotional expression of the original injury will simmer unaddressed. The trick to this curious witness approach to healing is not necessarily to solve or to cure the trauma, but to approach it with curiosity and honesty and a sincere willingness to feel. I believe the same psychological process is useful in addressing collective trauma, including and especially the gender, religious, and race-based trauma invoked in this episode. 
witnessing suffering, our own and that of others, is a precondition for recovery and redemption. We are the creative expressions of the Earth's body. And the Earth does not bleed because it is broken. It bleeds because it is whole. It is abundant. It is, to use an appropriate word, well. Therefore, this episode will gaze at narratives of violence and trauma, not in an attempt to solve them or to make them okay, but to bear witness to their symbolic power, as well as their real-world effects in the lives of people, especially those who have been historically oppressed in the long Christian imperialist era we find ourselves in. This episode applies the principle of the water of death, and sits for a moment with the remembering it brings about, because wells and springs themselves remind us that it is visiting and loving the parts of us that weep and bleed and pour forth in excess that is the precondition for our integrity and the vibrancy of our collective life on earth. Much of the folklore we encounter of wells and violence is related to Christian doctrine, legend, and folklore, partly because wells are such central and widespread sites of popular religion, whose meaning Christianity sought for many centuries to assimilate into its own value structure of purity, pollution, sacrifice, and redemption. Today it is nearly impossible to separate the pagan and Christian elements of well folklore and worship, but what is easier to parse is which stories communicate Christian values and anxieties, especially in the case of the subject matter of women's bodies and the contested ownership of their creative power. This conflict between the medieval church and bodies marked as other will be a strong theme in this episode, you'll see. But first, let us turn to the products of feminine fertility itself, children. Children appear often in the folklore of wells and springs, and often in situations of great peril. When they aren't falling into wells, they may be tossed into them, or sometimes, dramatically, their lifeless bodies are hidden or revealed in these openings in the earth. In one of the earliest Christian folk narratives of children and bodies of water, the child Jesus walks one day down to a riverside, but encounters some wealthier children there playing ball. He asks the children if he can play with them. They decline saying he's lower class than they are, having been born in an ox's stall. So Jesus, in retribution, makes a bridge out of sunbeams over the river and climbs on top. The other children try to follow, and they fall into the river and drown. In a later, less troubling version of this child Jesus ballad, the action takes place at a holy well, and when Jesus is rejected by his potential playmates in this version, he runs home to his mother, Mary, who advises vengeance. She says, My child, you are the very king of heaven. I suggest you march back down to that holy well and dip those classist bullies deep into hell. Her suggestion stands out in this version of the ballad because it suggests that the well itself may be an opening to the underworld. Jesus declines her narrative of domination and murder and opts to forgive the children instead. The angel Gabriel then appears to Jesus, confirming that, if there was any question, 
His behavior that day proves he is indeed the King of Heaven. This is the Appalachian singer Gene Ritchie's performance of the ballad known as The Holy Well. As it fell out one May morning And upon a bright holiday Sweet Jesus asked of his dear mother If he might go and play To play, to play, sweet Jesus shall go And to play now get you gone And let me hear of no complaint At night when you come home Sweet Jesus went down to yonder town As far as the holy well And there did see as fine children As any tongue can tell He said, God bless you, everyone, and your bodies, Christ, save and see. And now, little children, I'll play with you, and you shall play with me. But they made answer to him, no, thou art meaner than us all. But a simple fair maid's child Born in an ox's stall Sweet Jesus turned him round about Nor left, nor smiled, nor spoke But the tears came trickling from his eyes Like waters from the rock Sweet Jesus turned him round about to his mother's home went he and said i have been in yonder town as after you may see i said god bless you everyone and your bodies christ save and see and now little children i'll play with you and you shall play with me but they made answer to me, no, they were lords and ladies' sons. And I, the meanest of them all, born in an ox's stall. Sweet Jesus, go down to yonder town, as far as the holy well, and take away those sinful souls. Dip them deep in hell Nay, nay, sweet Jesus smiled and said Nay, nay, that may not be For there are too many sinful souls Crying out for the help of me Then up spoke the angel Gabriel Upon a good set stem Although you're but a maiden's child, you are the king of heaven. Many of the folk songs and tales connected to wells and springs take inspiration from a biblical account of Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well. Here's the story as it appears in the Gospel of John. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the man you are now living with is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Eastern Christian tradition holds that after her meeting with Jesus at the well, the woman, later called Fotini for illumination, becomes one of the biggest evangelists for Christianity. That is, until she attempts to convert the emperor Nero, at whose hands she is martyred, her body thrown down a dry well, the location that has so many layers of meaning for her tale. The story of the meeting at the well is likely a troping of a betrothal narrative from the Hebrew Bible, where a young man meets a young woman at a well, they discover they are part of the same extended family, and the young man is invited for dinner, where they are engaged. But this Christian scriptural tale, the later one, shifts the meaning of the well water from feminine fertility to the masculine, disembodied, eternal life promised by Christianity. Jesus' water of life is immaterial. It is transcendent, even disdainful of embodiment. The general shape of this Christian biblical account appears in ballads collected in the 19th century in many regions of Europe, some originating in Scandinavia and traveling from there to Scotland, England, and Ireland. In these later ballad versions of the tale, a powerful man approaches a well where a woman is drawing water or washing clothing and asks her to pour him a drink of water. He begins to question her about her marital status, ultimately revealing to her and the listener that he somehow omnisciently knows her entire sexual history. And it's not pleasant. In a Swedish-language version of the ballad that originated in the Middle Ages, a woman called Magdalena goes alone to the bridge over a spring to gather water. And when she arrives, she meets Jesus there. He asks if she would offer him a drink from her hands, since she doesn't have a cup. And since apparently virginity is a requirement for this intimate act, she swears that she's never been with a man. Jesus counters by stating that, in fact, I know you've mothered and murdered three babies, the first from your father, the second from your brother, and the third from your priest, which was the worst sin of all. He then tells her she must do seven years of penance, spent walking alone in the woods. All you will eat is the bark off of spruces, he tells her, and all you will drink is the juice of linden leaves. Your bed will be the linden roots, and your peace will be only the howling of wolves. This is the medieval ballad Maria Magdalena by Wendela Johansson. Magdalena gick sig ut i gröna lund, solen sken i dag. Där mötte hon sin fölsa man, 
allt ut i lunden gröna. När mötte hon sin fälsamän, allt ut i lunden den gröna. Magdalena faller för sin fälsamän, solen sken i dag. Vill du dricka vänskap med vita hand, allt ut i lunden den gröna. Vill du dricka vänskap med vita hand, allt ut i lunden den gröna. Jag kan icke dricka vänskap ur din hand, solen sken i dag. Du har befattat dig med många namn, här ut i lunden den gröna. Du har befattat dig med många namn, här ut i lunden den gröna. Women's bodies are often equated with landscapes in the Western tradition. And as you can imagine, in an age of agriculture and enclosure and resource extraction, that equation rarely benefits that body's actual tenant. Added to the poignancy of Magdalena's story is the confronting moment staged in the song itself. Jesus's callous probing of her past and his delivery of seven years of punishment is yet another breach of this woman's consent and self-sovereignty. In this ballad version of the popular biblical story, the well very much evokes the womb and its fertility and abundance, but it also serves the purpose of a stage on which to entertain anxieties about the creative power of this feminized body that stands next to it. It's interesting to note that, despite its judgy character, at the time of the song's collection in Finland, it was most commonly performed by women themselves. Perhaps the singing of the song is a way to sit with the experience explored in it, a channel for the processing of the loss of agency it describes. Singing behaves in the body much like a spring in the land, a moment of the body in flow, a perpetual act, both creative and repetitive, a carrying forth and a letting go. <laughs> En ligga på ett högstenberg, allt ut i lunden den gröna. En ligga på ett högstenberg, allt ut i lunden den gröna. The Well Below the Valley is an Irish version of the Woman at the Well ballad type, which came into popularity after it was recorded from John Riley, a traditional singer from the traveling community, in 1963 then performed by the popular folk band Planksty in 1973. The man in this version is not named as Jesus, rather he's called a gentleman or a man of noble fame. The woman in this narrative also seems to have a bit more agency, and she refuses the gentleman the drink of water that he asks for, saying she might fall into the well. He says you would give your true lover a drink if he came by, and she responds to him with her riddle. She swears by grass and swears by corn that her true lover has never been born. He responds saying she's being dishonest. She's had nine children, three by her father, her uncle, and her brother. And he even reveals where she buried them, two of them by the kitchen fire. And he delivers her a penance of 14 years, seven ringing a bell and seven as a porter in hell. What I find especially interesting about the exchange in this version is the fact that the woman says she has no true lover, and the man accuses her of dishonesty, when really, she is actually telling the truth of her experience, that her so-called lovers have all been abusers, 
and their relationship tarnished by power imbalance and tragedy. The woman tells as true a tale as any at the well below the valley. Here it is, The Well Below the Valley, sung by Frankie Armstrong and Maddie Pryor. A gentleman was passing by, he asked for a drink as he was dry at the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. My pitcher now does overflow, if I bend over tis in, I'll go to the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. If your true lover was passing by, you'd give him a drink if he was dry at the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. She swore by grass, she swore by corn, that her true lover had never been born at the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. Peace, fair maid, you are forsworn, for nine children have you born at the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. If you're a man of noble fame, pray tell to me their father's name at the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. For them by your father, dear, for more than by your uncle, the other one by your brother, John, at the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. Since you're a man of noble fame, pray tell to me what happened then at the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. For them bear it by the sty, for more them by the stable. The other one lies beneath the well, the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. Since you're a man of noble fame, pray tell to me what happens then at the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. You'll be seven long years a ringing a bell, seven more a porter in hell at the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. I'll be seven long years a ringing a bell, but the Lord above will save me from hell at the well below the valley. Green grow the lilies, oh, all amongst the bushes. The English ballad called George Collins narrates a very different sort of meeting between a man and a maid, who the man encounters washing a white marble stone next to a stream. The location is not explicitly placed at a well, 
but this ballad contains so many of the same elements of the songs discussed in this episode that I would readily group it in with the same category. As the maid sees George, she calls out, inviting him to come closer. At this, George takes her by the hand and by the sleeve, and then, as the song says, he's laid her down upon the bank and never has asked her leave. This version of the song's lyrics strongly suggest that he rapes her, though in other versions he does not assault her, but rather their relationship is consensual, but he betrays her by marrying another woman or concealing the fact that he's married already. In any case, George Collins immediately suffers the consequences of his violation of this maid he just met and is struck at once with a vicious headache. At the same moment, we discover that this maid is no ordinary woman, but rather a mermaiden. After uttering a curse, she turns back into a fish and returns to the water. And within the day, George Collins is dead. The narrative at the center of this song plays on the same associations between flowing water and women, violation and punishment, but it does so from the perspective of a very different tradition, which is unequivocally pagan in origin. That is, the tradition of belief in feminine spirits of place and of water that appear all over Europe, such as the Gaelic Selkie folktales and the Russian Rusalka figure. In Western Ireland, there is even a holy well which is said to have a white trout in it, which, when removed from the well by a knight long ago, revealed itself to be a woman who asked to be returned to the well. This knight, luckily, obliged her, and when she returned, she turned back into a trout. I appreciate the implied moral of this animistic tale a great deal more than the one delivered by the previous ballads, as you might imagine. This one seems to say, respect the sovereignty of person and place, and obviously do not mess with any supernatural-looking women you encounter in the countryside washing a stone. This is George Collins by John Flegel. George Collins walked out one May morning when May was all in bloom. Twas there he beheld a pretty fair maid. She was washing her white marble stone. She whooped, she hollered, she hired her voice. She raised up her lily-white hand. Come hither to me, George Collins, quoth she, for thy life shall not last you long. He took her by the milk-white hand, likewise by the grass-green sleeve. He's laid her down upon the bank, and never has asked her leave. George Collins cried out, Oh, hold and alas, so sore is this pain in my head. Merrily laughed the mermaiden, Oh, ever till you be dead. George Collins took out his little penknife, so sharp for to draw her blood. But she's become a fish again and sprang into the flood. George Collins rode home to his father's own gate and loudly he did ring. George Collins rode home to his father's own gate for the help of his kith and kin. Arise, dear father, and let me in. 
Rise, dear mother, and make my bed. Arise, my dear sister, and get me a napkin, a napkin to bind round my head. For if by chance to die this night, as a fear in my heart I will, go bury me under that marble stone at the foot of fair Helen's hill. Fair Helen doth sit in a room so fine, a sewing a silver skein. When she sees the fairest corpse a coming that ever the sun shined on, she called unto her Irish maid, whose corpse is this so fine? They say it's George Collins' corpse a coming that was once a true lover of thine. Now you go upstairs and fetch me the sheet what's wove with a silver twine. Go hang it over George Collins' head, tomorrow it shall hang over mine. The news went round through fair London town, was rode all on fair London's gate. Six pretty maids died all of one night, and all for George Collins' fate. If you're familiar with Arthurian legend, you may recognize the trope of the violation of women connected to wealth. A medieval text, one of the later written 13th century introductions to the Percival story by Chrétien de Troyes, describes the rape of 12 figures known as the Well Maidens and the consequences these attacks have for the famous Fisher King and the Kingdom of Logres, King Arthur's realm. It says, The wasting of the Kingdom of Logres and the disappearance of the Fisher King's castle can be ascribed to a certain King Amagnon, who, along with his men, raped twelve well-maidens who live in the forest and serve travellers, and stole their gold cups. Sirs Gawain and Percival were then tasked with restoring the cups to the well-maidens, but presumably they could not undo the trauma of their violation in the first place. Another striking thread in the symbolic tapestry linking Holywells with violence is the common and somewhat mysterious collocation of Holywells and stories about severed heads in Celtic myth and Gaelic folklore. This connection may converge with the Holy Grail legends found in Arthurian romance, where the Grail is not always depicted as a cup, as we typically expect nowadays, but also sometimes a severed head or a stone, both objects closely connected in European myths with wells and with hidden wisdom alike. This so-called cult of the head is retained in the devotion at numerous wells in historically Celtic places, where multiple head-shaped stones have been recovered. Countless holy wells in Gaelic areas boast legends connecting them to heads, like St. Telios Healing Well in Pembrokeshire, where people drank the well water from St. Telios' skull itself, right into the 20th century. In Scotland, the name of the famous Well of the Seven Heads marks the moment a Highlander called Loam stopped on the way to his lord's manor. To wash the seven decapitated heads, he and a vigilante armor had removed from the perpetrators of a murder and that he was carrying to present to the lord. Ancient Celts did, in fact, hunt heads, 
In this, they did not differ from many other Indo-European cultures. The head is a potent symbol and a storehouse of wisdom and identity, and its dismemberment is shocking, and it also issues forth a large amount of gushing blood, much like, you might say, a spring. It's worth noting that in Norse myth, Mimir is the keeper of the well Mimisbrunner, which is the source of wisdom to which Odin sacrifices his eye for a drink. In another tale, however, Odin carried Mimir's severed and preserved head around, consulting it for wisdom and knowledge of magic. Apparently both the head and the well of Mimir have the very same power to convey wisdom. The affinity between the folklore of wells and of severed heads traveled intact through the Middle Ages and into the modern era in the vehicle of the ballad, sometimes attaching to the theme of incest as it went. A number of closely related ballads tell a story of the murder of three sisters and the spring associated with their demise. The song exists in versions in Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and Iceland. In a Swedish version of the ballad, known as Per Tirsen's Daughters, in Vainge, on which Ingmar Bergman's film Virgin Spring is based, three sisters are on their way to church one morning, and three highwaymen approach them. They try to force the girls into marriage, and the girls refuse. In response, the robbers cut off their heads against a birch log and strip them to sell the clothing. Later, the robbers go to the house of the girls' parents, trying to sell their silk shifts, and the mother, Karen, recognizes the clothing as that of her daughters. Their father, Per Tiersen, kills two of the boys and questions the last. He discovers that the boys were in fact his long-lost sons, and the boy discovers that the girls were their sisters. In atonement for having killed his own sons, the father built a church on the site of the girls' murder, next to the sacred spring that bubbled up in the exact place that the girls were beheaded. Here is Jan Hammerlund with Per Tiersen's Dotrar i Vänge. Per Tiersen's Dotrar i Vänge Kaller vardera skog Det sov en sömn för länge Medan skogen han Först vaknade den yngsta, kaller var deras skog, så väckte hon upp de andra, medan skogen han lövas. Så tog hon det på sina silkeskläder, kaller var deras skog, och ging Kaller var deras skog 
Skolar i tag era unga liv Medan skogen han lövar Ej aldrig blir vi vallardi Kaller var deras skor Långt hellre kan ni ta våra unga liv Medan skogen han lövar Det högg i deras huvud mot björkestok Kaller var deras skog Där runn och tre klara källor upp Medan skogen han Grävde det ner i dyr Kaller var deras skog Kläderna burade fram till by Medan skogen han lövar Och när som det kom och till Vängebo Kaller var deras skog där ute på den fru Karin står Medan skogen han lövas Och viljen i köpa silkesärkar Kaller var deras skog Vem sexton jungfrur har stickat och virkat Medan skogen han Och låt mig se Kaller var deras skog Kan hända jag känner dem alla tre Medan skogen han lövar Much like the status of women in Christianity The very existence of Jews was a paradox for medieval Christians the Church's promotion of Jesus as the Savior of all humankind left little room for any other interpretation of the telos, or end purpose, of religious activity than the one they promoted, salvation for fallen humans through the cult of Jesus. In medieval Christianity, Judaism was acknowledged as the precursor to Christianity, but rarely seen as complete and correct in its own right. In the voracious logic of Christian expansionism, Contemporary Jews were too often seen only to serve their true purpose by being dominated and subsumed into the meta-narrative of Christian supremacy through religious conversion, segregation, and or genocide. This is, of course, a violent way of thinking, and its diffusion among Christian congregations led to horrifically violent behavior. One particular branch of folklore created by this logic of domination, opposition, and fear in medieval England that I'll speak to now was the topic of my master's thesis, that is, the blood libel, or accusations of ritual murder against Jews. These ritual murder stories emerged from post-Norman England, and they accused Jewish communities of murdering Christian children 
in imitation of the crucifixion of Christ, an event which at the time was popularly blamed on the Jews as a group. Often these anti-Semitic child murder tales include claims of a miracle, frequently one where the child's dead body refuses to be hidden or to keep silent, and so it reveals its killer and points to its own status as a martyr to the Christian faith. These tales are also often connected with the Virgin Mary, who sometimes appears as a rescuer or a special patron of the child, such as in Chaucer's Prioress's tale, where the body of the child won't stop singing anthems to Mary until he is formally buried. Because the children in these stories are types of the infant Jesus, the appearance of Mary is no surprise. She is, after all, the mother of Jesus, and you could say it is the symbolic meaning of her own Jewish feminized body that is a large part of what's at stake in these fantastical narratives. The first known version of this anti-Semitic ritual child murder accusation to be written down was the tale of a Christian boy named William in Norwich, whose body was found in 1144 in a forest near the town showing signs of abuse. The record of this tale is a rather lengthy account by Thomas of Monmouth, a monk at the Norwich Benedictine Monastery. He wrote it four years after the body was found. He blamed the death squarely on the Jewish population, claiming that the global Jewish population planned one of these murders every year, and that this time the place was supposed to be England. Though it appears Thomas of Monmouth's account was not taken seriously by many at the time, its purpose was likely to increase the profit of the monastery by popularizing the site as a pilgrimage route. Thomas framed young William as a martyr, evidently hoping to have him recognized as a saint. This never occurred, but the story bred many similar ones around England. Having read a number of these accusations and related folktales, I noticed that a particular symbolically potent image repeats in these tales, and that is the image of dangerous enclosures. Children were often shown to be either trapped alive in ovens, privies, or very commonly wells, or their bodies were hidden or discovered in these places. Because the womb is a symbol of divine feminine in Christianity, but also seen as a site of sin and uncleanness, images of children trapped or endangered in enclosures resembling the womb were a convenient way to express fear of an inversion of what was considered to be the proper relationship between the female body and a child. These ritual murder accusations repeated over the centuries of the Middle Ages, some of them leaving written records, and some not. They were especially popular in England. They fed into later host desecration accusations, which took on some of the features of these child murder stories in the centuries after the Church enshrined the doctrine of transubstantiation as dogma at the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. Transubstantiation is the belief that the communion wafer, or the host, is the literal body of Jesus Christ. With this change in doctrine, the paranoia of Christian communities that their children would be murdered by Jews was somewhat replaced by a new fear, even easier to manufacture because it didn't require a corpse. That fear was that the body of Christ itself, now believed to be literally housed in every chapel in Christendom, might be tortured and destroyed by outsiders. Host desecration accusations were the pretext for some of the most horrific massacres and expulsions of Jews across Europe in the Middle Ages. I'm now going to share a story with you 
one of the ritual child murder accusations that emerged from England in 1255, when the body of a young boy named Hugh was discovered in a well in Lincoln. In keeping with the genre, the child's death was blamed on the Jewish community, who were believed to have crucified and mutilated the body. It was claimed that the murderer had initially buried the body, but the earth spit it out again, so that it was placed next in a well, where Hugh's own mother found it. The discovery of his body in this well by his mother was promoted as a miracle, and again, it can be assumed that the promotion of this child's death and the associated miracle was intended to attract pilgrims, the medieval version of tourists. This is a particularly memorable version of the child murder accusation because the king himself got involved, having 90 Jews imprisoned in the Tower of London and 18 of them publicly hanged. As the first of these tales to receive confirmation from the Crown, the story of Little Hugh of Lincoln developed sufficient notoriety to be made into a ballad, which remained in the repertoire of some traditional singers into the 19th century. In the story told by this song, Little Hugh is lured by a young Jewish woman with an apple, who stabs him to death and bleeds him out and hides his body in the well in the Jewish neighborhood of the city. His mother, looking for him, hears his voice calling from the well to rescue him and to give him a Christian burial. Here is the heart-wrenching ballad with a complicated history, Little Sir Hugh, performed by Scottish singer Alistair Roberts. The rain comes down in Merry Lincoln, so does it down the pole. So does the lads of Merry Lincoln when they play at the ball. And up and spoke the Jew's daughter, oh, will you come in and dine? I can't come in, I won't come in without my playfair's nine. She pulled an apple The sweet bearded whim She's taken out her weekend knife Hung low down by the door And twined the young thing of his life And word he never spoke more And out and come the thick, thick Bid him lie and sleep. She's flung him into the Jews' draw well, was fifty fathoms dear. When bells were rung and mass was sung, went every lady home, and every lady had 
Began to weave, and she's run up to the Jews' castle when they were fast asleep. My bonny Hugh, my dear Sir Hugh, I pray you to me speak. Oh, lady, run to the deep draw well if you. So she's run up to the deep draw well and knelt down on her knee. My bonnie Hugh, my dear Sir Hugh, I pray you speak to me. The lead is wondrous, heavy mother, the well is wondrous deep. A keen penknife stays in my heart and a word I my winding sheet and it's at the back of Mary Lincoln it's there we two shall meet go home, go home my mother dear and fetch my winding sheet and bury me in the sepulchre with the Bible at Wells are also containers. Women and Jews in patriarchal Christianity both represent a source and an origin of something pertinent to Christian thought. Women are the source of human life, and Jewish history and religion are the source and origin of a large part of Christian doctrine. The meanings of the bodies of both women and Jews have been repeatedly enclosed and walled up like springs inside the ideological confines of the Christian empire, so that their output can be controlled by the desires of the dominant power. The real lived subjectivity of the oppressed, of course, is constantly erupting into and disrupting the fantasies created by the dominant culture, and songs and stories like these about wells and springs are a testament to the conflict that personal freedom and expression comes into with a totalitarian institution, the medieval church, that believes it must rule at any cost. The unresolvedness of moving water 
its relation to the complex, the moist and vulnerable parts of ourselves, the eye, the womb, the brain, is what makes these such powerful sites of both injury and healing. And when it comes to the collective healing of trauma, like that experienced in patriarchal Christianity, that encourages disconnection from the body, and the rejection of certain types of bodies, whether they're feminine or Jewish or not, it's incredibly important to include embodiment in the healing process. One of the most profound ways that embodied healing can take place, as many of the songs in this episode demonstrate, is through the act of singing. Singing reminds you that your body may be in pain, your heart may be in pain, but you are also whole, and the act of singing is an expression of harmony with the self and with the world, however at odds those things may feel in the moment. You create that harmony by expressing and integrating the pain that's in your heart and in your body. Singing asserts wholeness, even within a narrative of brokenness. If any of the subject matter of this episode touched you or brought a tear to your eye or a fire to your belly, I encourage you to express that feeling through song, if you can, and observe how you feel as both the waters of life and the waters of death flow through you at once. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fair Folk. If you enjoyed it, please share it, and remember to sign up for the mailing list on the website to be the first to hear about my new offering in a couple of weeks. If you love the podcast, and you haven't already, please consider supporting it by signing up to be a patron on Patreon. The links for both the mailing list and Fair Folk's Patreon page are in the show notes below. Thank you to all the musicians whose music appears in this episode. If it brought you pleasure or helped you to move through pain, please consider supporting the artists themselves by buying their music. Thank you especially to Sylvia Woods for her song, the opening theme of Fair Folk, Forest March. Please take good care, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>